Well, brothers and sisters, it is a delight to be with you again this morning and to do so this Advent season and would ask that you would open to that familiar passage in Luke chapter 2. As you're returning in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, please stand as well for the reading of God's holy word this morning. It's not a cliche. There really is no better place for us to be than to be together on the Lord's day and to open his word and to hear the glories of Christ. I trust that your heart is joyful and expectant this morning. And if not, I would encourage you to pause even now and to pray that God would change your heart as we hear the reading of God's word. Speaking of God's word, I'm going to read in your hearing Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. Let us give our attention now to the word of the Lord. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. You may be seated. Brothers and sisters, Christ came to earth to do what? I wonder how you would finish that sentence. Perhaps our first instinct would be to think of Christ's coming to earth in relation to us. In other words, Christ came to earth to die for us. He came to forgive our sins. Christ came to bring us back to God. 
And of course, that is all true. Christ came to do all of that and more. And the and more is what I want us to think about this morning. Beloved, I want you to see that Christ also came to earth to conquer His enemies. As you know, our aim this month is to cultivate deeper reflection and warmer reverence for Christ. That's why we have set aside the month of December to reflect upon Advent. And just so that you know, due to sickness a couple of weeks ago on my end, we are going to be spilling over into January for Advent. I have some Advent sermons that I have prepared that I am going to preach, even if it is January. So be that as it may, I I think if we are honest, Advent, whether in December or January, it doesn't always get the wonder and worship that it deserves, even among Christians, even in the church. I'm sure you can relate to this, and, and I have no intention of impugning any of your motives or character by saying so, but Christmas comes and goes so quickly, doesn't it? I will grant trees go up and and cookies get baked and gifts are given and that's all glorious and it's all true. And for some of us, that whole thing might last months. But I fear for most of us, and again, myself included, that Christmas, the actual celebration of the birth of Christ, it can at times take a back seat. And so again, our aim is to fight that impulse to see how advent is the celebration of christ's coming to us and as we've seen christ comes to us as prophet and as priest and as god and this morning we are going to see how advent is also the celebration of christ coming to us as king Now, before we unpack this, we have to understand that the role of the king, it predates Christmas. In fact, it goes back much further than even Israel itself. Truth be told, the role of the king goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. You will remember, the pinnacle of God's creation was humanity. And Adam, in the garden, was crowned king of of the world. It was his responsibility as king to exercise dominion over all of creation. As the divine image-bearing king, he was to rule and reign over God's world as vice-regent. Which also meant that Adam's responsibility included protecting God's sanctuary. This is important for us to grasp. This is what kings do, church. Kings protect people and kings protect places. This is what makes the snake slithering into the garden such an affront. That snake was the enemy of God, the enemy of humanity. That serpent was a rebel, a turncoat. And so as king, what Adam should have done is grab his shovel, turn it around, and cut the head off of that vile creature. Instead, as you know, that snake led Adam and all of humanity with him into the greatest fall 
this world has ever known. Mark my words then. On that day in Genesis chapter 3, war was declared. And Adam is the one who fired the first shot across the bow. When he did, sin and death invaded our world. The point is that Adam the king had failed. And as they say, as goes the king, so goes the kingdom. From this perspective then, what we should see is that the whole Old Testament is really a tragic story of failure. I say that because not only did the prophets speak lies and reject God's word, that's why we need Christ the prophet, and not only did the priests rebel against God's word and offer strange fire, that's why we need Christ the priest. But the kings were no exception. Like their father Adam, they too failed to protect God's, pe uh, God's people and God's places, those that were entrusted to them by God Himself. Think of Manasseh for a moment. Manasseh was a king in the south, the king of Judah. He was such a wicked man that 2 Chronicles 33 records these haunting words. Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray, hear this, to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. You hear that? Under the kingship of Manasseh, the very people of God had become more wicked than the pagans who once lived there that God had booted out of the land of promise. The point not to be missed is that the people of God have become worse than the enemies of God. King Ahab in the north, the king of Israel, was no different. This man was unbelievably awful. And 1 Kings paints him warts and all. We are told that he was a murderous and idolatrous king. A cruel tyrant who was a blight upon the people of God. And let's be clear, even the so-called good kings, you know, the ones that we all learn about in Sunday school, well, they were only good in relation to the extremely bad kings. For example, Solomon succumbed to his lustful fantasies by acquiring multitudes of pagan wives, which plunged his soul into utter darkness. Even King David, as you know, the sweet psalmist of Israel, the man after God's own heart. We know he was a lying murderer. The point is, we don't just need a king. We need a godly king. And we need a godly king because from Genesis chapter 3 on, the world has been at war. We've been at war with ourselves. We've been at war with one another. Beloved, we have been at war with God. And so we need a king. One to defend us, fight for us, and rescue us. We need a king who will provide for us and protect us. Like Adam should have done, we need a king who will defeat all our enemies. 
In short, we need a king who will do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And beloved, the good news is this. Scripture promises such a king. Consider Isaiah chapter 9. That wonderful Advent promise. In fact, I would ask you, if you would, to hold your finger in Luke chapter 2 and to turn over to Isaiah chapter 9 because I want you to not just hear these promises. I want you to see them with your own eyes. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 9 and I want to look for a moment beginning in verse 6. Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 6. The prophet announces, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government, we are told, and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. With your finger in Isaiah chapter 9, let me draw your attention very briefly to three realities of this Advent promise. First, Notice his identity. What does Isaiah 9 reveal to us about this figure? Well, we know that he is a king, isn't he? We know this because we are told in verse 6 that the government shall be upon his shoulder. So the very mention of this idea of government, it immediately tips us off. The identity of this person is one of leadership, of authority kingship. And if there was any doubt, verse 7 quickly removes it. We are told this same one will occupy, verse 7, the throne of David. Remember, David is the quintessential king. So much so that all of the Davidic covenant and all of its promises are really wrapped up with kingship. And those same promises, beloved, are reserved for David's descendants. So catch this. This is one of those threads that you need to be sensitive to as you're reading through the Scriptures. Here in Isaiah and all throughout the Old Testament, the question is, what are the people of God waiting for? And the answer is, they are waiting for for the advent of this greater son of David who would come and be their king and rule over them. That's what they're holding their breath for. That's his identity. What sort of king will he be? Well, that brings us to the second reality of this advent promise, his character. Christian, don't miss the four titles given here. Let them stoke the fires of your hearts. For our King is altogether glorious. To begin with, He is wonderful counselor. Meaning that He is wise and discerning. He is trustworthy and reliable. 
unlike Adam in the garden, and unlike all of the kings of Jerusalem, this figure here, he will operate with the mind of God. Speaking of God, next he is identified as mighty God. A phrase letting us know in no uncertain terms that this king will also be divine. Right? This king will not be like every other king who has come before him, a mere mortal. This king will be in a league all his own. Then, he will also be called Everlasting Father. A wonderful term reminding us that this king will, in fact, provide for and protect his people. The point is, we're not talking here about some ivory tower, sort of standoffish figure who is totally disconnected from his people. The point is, this king will tenderly look after and love his people the way a father loves his children. Finally, he is the prince of peace. Meaning through His rule, conflict will cease and peace will reign. Think about that. Again, war, which has gripped creation from Genesis 3 on. It will be through this King undone. The curse will be reversed. Instead of death, His reign will be one of life. And rather than bloodshed, His rule will usher in peace. Perhaps this is all too good to be true though. Perhaps this king's reign here in Isaiah 9 will be a mere flash in the pan. A a, a rule or reign like that of Josiah's. You remember? This sort of bright spark throughout uh, the kings, but one that sort of was here today and gone tomorrow. Is that how this king's reign will be? Will it be glorious, but then gone by the weekend? This brings us to the third reality of this Advent promise, his kingdom. What does the prophet Isaiah tell us about his reign? Two glorious truths. First, it is one of peace. And second, it is one that is unending. Verse 7 is clear in this regard. We are told of the increase of his government and of Peace, there will be no end. Just as it is true now, so it was true in Isaiah's day. All the kingdoms of this world, they have an expiration date, a shelf life. But not the kingdom of Christ. His is one, not just of peace, beloved, but of perpetual peace. It will know no end. So with the wonder of Isaiah 9 ringing in your ears, turn back now to Luke chapter 2. And I want you to turn back, beloved, because I want all of us to see that Christmas is the advent of this King. In other words, Luke 2 shows us that Isaiah 9 was fulfilled in the birth of Jesus Christ, He who is the King of the world. To see this, allow me to make three observations. To begin with, 
Notice Christ the King's pedigree. At first glance, it might very well be missed. After all, all of our attention is captivated by the angelic host and their heavenly song. But don't so quickly skate past verse 4, particularly the last clause. We are told that Joseph, and with him Mary, traveled to Bethlehem for Caesar Augustus's census. Why Bethlehem, you ask? Because, verse 4, Joseph was of the house and lineage of David. You see that? Joseph hails from the line of David. A not-so-insignificant detail. What is given only a passing head nod here is owing to the fact that Luke has already gone out of his way to establish this fact in chapter 1. For example, back in Luke chapter 1, verse 27, we are told that the angel Gabriel was sent by God on mission to Mary. She who was, Luke 1, 27, a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. But the point is that Christ hails from the house of David the line of the kings. If that wasn't enough, Gabriel's message, in a lot of ways, it revolves around this whole idea. Consider the angelic announcement in Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. Speaking of Mary's son, the angel Gabriel says this, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him, don't miss this, the throne of his father David. So what is the angel saying? He's saying that this child, he is the promised Christ King. The greater son of David that all of the Old Testament has been looking forward to. If there was any doubt, the angel goes on, and he, still speaking of Christ, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Let me ask you, what does Gabriel's message sound like? It sounds a lot like Isaiah 9's promise, doesn't it? And that's because Christ's birth on Christmas morning is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. To say the same thing a bit differently, the birth of Christ on Christmas morning marks the birth of the promised King of the Old Testament. He who would rule and reign defending his people and defeating their enemies. Now all of that is what makes this next observation so odd. I say that because of Christ the King's circumstances. In other words, don't miss the specifics or the details of his birth. For example, Luke goes out of his way to let us know in chapter 2 that upon his birth, Christ was wrapped, verse 7, in swaddling cloths, not royal robes. Rather than a master suite, this king was placed, verse 7, in a manger. 
Now, as you know, normally kings are born in a palace. But this one, he's born in a, in a barn. And at his birth, you will look in vain for anything that would resemble the red carpet being rolled out. To be candid, the birth of this king didn't even make the nightly news. Local dignitaries and nobility are absent. In fact, Luke lets us know the only ones who attended the birth of this king were some local shepherds. Those who you should know stood at the bottom of the social ladder, akin to tax collectors and dung sweepers. The point? Well, the circumstances surrounding this king's birth were remarkably unremarkable. Be honest, humble is one thing, but being altogether insignificant is another. And this screams the latter. For all intents and purposes, Christ was a nobody, born to a peasant woman in the backwaters of Israel. This is not someone to get excited about. Given all of this, given his paltry birth, we might be tempted to think the son of this peasant woman is no king at all. But of course, that would be a grave mistake. The Scriptures reveal to us that He is not only king, but He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And that with the coming of this king, there comes a grand promise. And that's actually the third and final observation I want to make with you this morning. His birth is one of promise. What is that promise, you ask? If the arrival of this king is a tsunami, then, then what comes in his wake? Just one word. Peace. Pick it up with me in verse 9. We are told that an angel of the Lord appeared to them. That is, appeared to the shepherds. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they, that is the shepherds, were filled with great fear. So the angel, sensing the fear of the shepherds, said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, all the, even you local shepherds, even you at the bottom of the social ladder. What is that good news? The angels say in verse 11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So the good news is that Christ the King has been born. Okay, What will this King bring with Him? Listen to the angelic song now in verse 14. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. That's Isaiah 9 again, isn't it? Christ the King will usher in peace. That is the promise of King Jesus. You, you may remember how John 1.16 testifies, for from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. I like to think that Luke would add, for from His fullness we have all received peace upon peace. 
Now, church, this is glorious news indeed, especially when you remember that from Genesis chapter three on, the world has been at war. But beloved, what Isaiah and Luke and all of the scriptures want us to see is that though this world is at war, Christ himself will be the one to wave the white flag. Here's the question, though, how? How will Christ bring about peace? Let me give you the answer, and then we'll unpack it. The birth of Christ, and by that we mean the incarnation of the Son of God, we mean Christmas, we mean Advent, right? The birth of Christ was an invasion, one whereby Christ would restore harmony by conquering sin, conquering Satan, and by conquering death all through His cross. Let me say the same thing just a little bit differently. Christ's birth marks the climactic beginning of the end for sin, Satan, and death. All enemies He will defeat at His cross. Like I said, we need to unpack that. Give me a moment. How does Christ the King defeat sin? Let's start there. Here's the short answer. He defeats it by yielding to it Himself. In other words, though He Himself was perfect and sinless and righteous, Christ willingly covenanted to be charged with our sin. That's why He was born. That's why He became one of us. The King of the world robed Himself with the flesh of a peasant that He might die as a substitute for sinners. So we can say, granted with fear and trepidation, that on the cross, all the sin of the elect was imputed to Christ in such a way that in that moment he was treated or, or regarded or reckoned as a bona fide sinner. Which is why the wrath of God descended upon him and not you. That's why Christ was cursed. So that you and I wouldn't be. Think of Galatians 3. Scripture announces that Christ redeemed us Galatians 3.13, from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Or, think of 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, God made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. You see, in one of the great paradoxes of the world, King Jesus defeated sin by becoming sin, by owning it, by taking it to Himself, by drinking down the bitter cup of God's wrath, which is what every single sinner deserves. This all means 
the incarnation is not merely Christ just assuming our humanity. It is really Christ assuming our humanity that He then might assume our judgment. That's not all. Christ the King also defeats Satan. This is how Colossians 2.15 expresses it. Colossians 2.15 We are told that Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. How? By triumphing over them in Him or, or in the cross. It's Colossians 2.15 Who are these rulers and authorities? Well, it, it seems based upon other places in Scripture where Paul uses language like this that, that what he's referring to are spiritual entities. Demons fallen angels, Satan. Fair enough. But how did Christ triumph over this evil horde? Well, He did so, Colossians 2.14, the verse immediately preceding the one I just read, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This, we are told, Christ set aside by nailing it to the cross. Here's the deal. One that I think a lot of Christians struggle to get. Satan's power over sinners is directly connected to our sin. That is his only source of leverage. He accuses us because of our sin. He condemns us because of our sin. Without the stain of sin, Satan cannot accuse us of being filthy. That makes sense? Maybe think of it this way. A warden only has power and authority over the prisoner so long as that prisoner remains in his custody as a convict. Right? But once he is freed... That warden has no say in the matter. Well, beloved, Christ paid our debt on the cross. He served our sentence, if you like. And now, the warden has nothing to say to you or me. Because in Christ, we are free men and free women. The warden, to use the language again of Colossians 2.15, has been disarmed. Or, if I can just cut right to the chase, Satan really has been defeated. Because at the cross, Christ put him down. Now sure, it's true, he can still tempt us. Satan can even harass us. But what Christians have to understand is that His leverage over us has been completely taken away. It has been taken away because Christ has removed all of our sin by taking it upon Himself. And because our sin has been taken away, Satan has been disarmed. Think of it this way. That filthy snake may rattle and hiss but it has been defamed. The venom is no longer there. 
And that's because Christ the King has triumphed over the great enemy of our souls. Speaking of enemies, Christ the King has also defeated our greatest enemy. What is our greatest enemy, beloved? Something that we all will face, but none of us want to talk about. Death. How has Christ defeated this greatest enemy of ours? Well, He did so by overcoming death in His resurrection. When He walked out of the tomb on the third day, beloved, Christ did so in power and glory, and He killed death. Now, none of this means that we're not going to die. If Christ tarries, we are all going to die. But death, which used to sort of swallow sinners and be nothing but a dead end, now in Christ, for the Christian, death is a doorway to eternal life. This is one of the great promises of the Gospel. Though we die, Christ says, yet shall you live. John 11.25 Christ's victory over the grave is our victory over the grave. Remember, He is our King. And so, His victory in battle is a victory He wins not just for Himself, but also for us. This is why, for example, Paul can so boldly proclaim in 1 Corinthians 15, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And he goes on to say, for as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Brothers and sisters, just as Adam brought death to our race by His sin. So Christ has brought life to us by His resurrection. And just as surely as Christ overcame the grave, the promise of the Gospel is that you and I too will overcome the grave. For the Christian, death is not the last word. Resurrection is. And that's not an empty word. That's not something that gets printed on a Hallmark card. That is a promise that the King of the world makes to you. Though you die, you will live. Now zoom out with me for a sec because I want us to behold Christ. Our King has defeated our greatest enemies. Not high taxes, endless military conflicts, poverty, sex trafficking. Be sure of this. One day in the new heaven and the new earth, all of those enemies will be fully and finally put down. That's true. But we need to see that those are not our greatest enemies. The Goliaths that stare us down are sin and Satan and death. And this Christmas, I want you to know that King Jesus has slew those giants. They no longer rule and reign over 
us. Christ is King. And He has triumphed through His cross, which is also His throne. Listen to how Calvin puts it. On the cross, as in a magnificent chariot, He triumphed over His enemies and ours. And don't misunderstand me, beloved. There is a day coming in which King Jesus will mount a war horse and shed the blood of His enemies. But that is not what Christmas is. Christmas is about King Jesus ascending to His throne, which is His cross, and shedding not the blood of His enemies, but His own blood. You see, we have to see that that though the angels exclaimed peace on earth when Christ was born, that peace came in the aftermath of the war of the cross where Christ spilled His own blood to bring about peace. So as we reflect upon Advent, I would encourage all of us to direct our minds to Christ. Our King has come, and He has established His kingdom, and He is ruling and reigning even now. Because of Him, your sin has been defeated. Satan has been disarmed, and death itself has been destroyed. And your King has done all of this. He has done all of this for you, but without you. In other words, this is not something that we partner with King Jesus on. He does all of this for us as a witness of His love and grace for us. So Christian, rejoice in your King. Love Him and trust Him and follow Him and serve Him. For He is a King who is worthy of all our affections. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this gathering of your people this day. We thank you that we have had the wonderful privilege of opening your word together. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work, even in these moments, to cause the good seed of your word to be buried into the soil of our hearts this morning, and that it would bear fruit. Bear fruit that is pleasing in the sight of King Jesus, your Son and our Savior. We pray these things in his precious name. And all of God's people said together, Amen.